0: All right, guys, should we'll be making our way back in. Man, I was just realizing how many weak spots there are on this stage, <laughs> especially right there. It's a real sketchy part of the stage. Note to self: fix that. <laughs> I'm gonna work on that. All right, guys. So it looks like we're all pretty much back in here. Um, yeah. So to dive back into it, back into that pool we were swimming in last week, we're talking about as I said, the E word, we're talking about entitlement this month and we're talking about it through the larger umbrella of sacrifice. And we spent our time last week laying out some of the foundation understanding of where entitlement comes from and how it uh, stems from an attitude and heart that's still hard and hasn't been fully transformed. Uh, that that transformation from selfish entitlement comes only when we realize what it is, what we're actually owed. And so we spent a lot of time talking about what it is that we think we're owed, and what it is that we think we're, we deserve, and, and that, that verbiage that we like to use. Um, and what we're actually owed is, is nothing. It's less than nothing. It's death, even. We're owed nothing, and yet we have, we have over us uh, a God of grace and reconciliation. That's sort of the note we ended off on last week, um, that we are owed nothing, but we still get grace and reconciliation, and a God that wants for us and a God that wants relationship with us, Uh, and where we recognize our place as servants under him. And, you know, being a servant means something. It means recognizing your position as a servant and what you're owed, which is nothing. You know, a servant doesn't work with expectancy. Um, And servants who not only accept their positions with that humility, but... God forbid, with joy because of what it means and for who it's for. We talked about how the world, for as far back as as we can know, uh, and through the introduction of sin by Satan and the garden, for example, has wrestled with that, um, with following God's plain and simple and beneficial counsel. We talked a little bit about that, sort of a crash course on that, versus Satan's rebellious counsel, which leads to, who remembers those things, which it leads to, remember those five Ds? Culminating in, yes, doubt, distortion, distrust, distrust, denial, which culminates in defecting away from God. So, where do we get our counsel from? Who do we listen to? We're listening to one or the other, and it boils down to that. And the attitudes of entitlement were present um, were present in that garden just as they were in 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 Egypt, uh, coming out of Egypt, and so on. So. We, spend some time talking about that, but God's gift of grace, free gift of grace through the sending of a Son has, should have a transformative power um, in our lives once we realize what we really are owed, what we really deserve. So, now over the next couple weeks, we're going to go into maybe some practical specifics about how we allow that entitlement attitude play out in our lives. Um, and I alluded to some of them last week. Maybe you picked up on it, but uh, for the rest of the month, we're going to be examining how we still need to grow in this way and shed this attitude of entitlement um, to transform and humble our hearts so that this free gift of grace actually means something and actually motivates us to uh, righteous and holy living. Uh, and in order to grow and be more mature in that way, to be, more, to be better disciples of Christ, we need to be able to analyze and be honest those aspects of ourselves which are missing the mark and be able to call it what it is and that's not always easy for us in fact it's pretty hard I would say for a lot of us especially us as men Um, and we need to be able to give our burdens to the body to help us be accountable in that way Um, and in that regard if it's hard for you to recognize it on your own and be honest about how you're missing the mark um, it's perhaps even harder to give that to someone else and be honest with them so that they can hold you accountable because now it's not just in your hands. You put it in someone else's hands, too. So, um, yeah, but nevertheless, we're called to to exactly this kind of living. This is the purpose of the body and the work of the body. So, um, so yeah. Remember that the world has definite opinions uh, and encouragements in terms of how it views entitlements uh, in re- yeah, how it views entitlements. We spent a little bit of time breaking that down last week. You know, the world would tell you to, you know, grab life by the horns or other things. Um, and that you deserve, you know, you deserve the best of whatever. We tell our kids these these, these lines to uh, that set them up for, for failure, perhaps, that, you know, pad their sense of what's real and what the, how the world's going to treat them and so on. Um, but once again, we need to ask ourselves and be honest with who... Or what we're taking counsel from, we're to be set apart. Otherwise, what's the point of what we're doing? You know, God then it sent His Son and then tell us to carry on, like carry on as you were. You know, we're we're called to 180, 180 in our hearts and in our minds. And last week I quoted the end of Romans 6, uh, that power verse. Do you guys remember what that power verse is? The end of Romans chapter 6 starts with "For the wages." Mhm. Um, so, I'm going to go back. I'm just going to read all of chapter 6 now, um, which ends with that verse. But it says, starting at the top of 6 of uh, the book of Romans, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Put a pen in that, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we, must also, we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him, with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. And we are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of it. And since we died with Christ, we know we also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. And when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. And so you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then... Since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Again, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. And because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all of this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. And now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. There's a certain, uh, I forget what it's called. I don't know if you guys know it. Like, the way he sets his, his letter up, that he does this many times in his, in his writings too. There's a certain... Um, mechanism to his writing where it's like a pattern of he says it and then boom, and then in reverse pattern and boom, it's called something. I can't remember what it is, but it really helps to reinforce his point and be very clear about what he's saying. You guys know what that is? It's called something in like, in like literature and writing, whatever. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, some of you may remember learning, I think I even spoke about it up here once before, um, Paul's wording here. It's not simply saying, of course not, you know, it's a very specific language. Um, this, this language in Greek, it me genomai, or me namasete, I think I've talked about it up here, it's him using the strongest possible negation of what he's talking about um, toward their anticipated response. Remember, he asks himself the question, should we do this? And then he responds, should we do this? And then he responds, and he's he's not saying simply, of course not, but he's saying, let it not even be a consideration in your lives. Don't even let the thought into your mind. Don't even allow it to have existence in your mind and discuss the possibility. This me genomai, or me namasete is the Greek. And he uses this vocabulary several times. I think Christ even uses this vocabulary when speaking. Um, But he uses it several times throughout his letters, like. Fifteen or so times to different churches and to different peoples, to the Romans, obviously, to go, the church in Galatia and the church, church in Corinth and to Timothy, um, and he uses it to combat this false teaching and, and unholy thinking. So the point is that we're called to not even entertain this other thinking, this unholy thinking uh, in regards to entitlement. We're called to transform our minds and to transform our hearts um, which is why I told you last week that that attitude of entitlement, it, it plays out. It's a war in both. It's a war in your heart and a war in your mind. And so we're called to 180 away from that. Don't even entertain the possibility of it, Paul says. And so, without further ado, this is, the, this is where I attempt to crash land some truth into what we're talking about. Um, and to your guys' preconceptions of what is right and good. And this week and next week, we'll challenge your guys' ideas and challenge whether or not your, your heart and your mind are in the right place, whether your heart is in submission to, to God uh, or in opposition, siding with the world's rebellion against him in regards to what it is we're going to be talking about today. Um, not to say that you're trying to, maybe actively in your mind, but nevertheless, may, maybe it's subconscious, maybe you are holding something out for God, um, or holding something out for yourselves, rather. Um, aspects of your sinful nature that you haven't really just repented of, plain and simple. Again, we're, you'll notice us here at the church being more plain in our language, you know, and calling things like it is, um, and calling you to a level of action by the, the words that we use, calling sin, sin, telling you you need to repent when you need to repent, not being delicate with it anymore, you know? Josh did a really good job, I think, starting out the, the, um, the year, I think it was in his first sermon when he talked about us as Aletheia switching how it is that we are speaking into the world. We're not retreating anymore. We're on the offensive now, okay? So that calls us to be plain in our language and be ready to offend, right? And that's what we can expect from God, and that's what um, Christ told us, we need to be bold, and, and all these things, so we need to be plain in our language, and so this is what, um, you're going you're to hear this more and more and more, um, analyzing the aspects of our still sinful nature that we wrestle with, and as I said, that sucks, and that's hard for us to, to look into, but we're called to do it, aspects that we still have pride over perhaps, truths that we might initially push back on, but I would suggest that the reason you're pushing back on it is because there's an element of truth to it. And when we feel truth encroaching on our heart and hearts, what do we do? We pull out our guns and be ready to defend ourselves. And that's just who we are as flawed people. Um, So, uh, I guess that's a heck of a disclaimer, but um, without further ado, maybe. Yeah. What I want to talk about this week is something that this particular church has struggled with over time at least since I've been here. Um, and it's a stumbling block for, for many believers. Um, yeah, and I'm sure it'll be a stumbling block in the future um, for, for us as people um, that we'll inevitably somewhere down the line have to face. And what it is is entitlement to our families. I thought it was interesting that you made a comment on our Bible study, um, John, and here I am talking about it. Um, now today, but entitlement to our families as over and above our commitment to God and to the body of Christ. Again, Josh called us all out at the beginning of the year and set the tone that this year is going to be uh, the year of sacrifice and analyzing what we're holding back and why we're holding back and who we're holding back from and for and all of these different things. Family is a big, big um, player, I guess, in that game. How we hold back our family from service to God, or how we use our family as a crutch because of our own inability to move forward, and so on. I'd call it one of uh, another one of those, kind of like last week, forever ago issues um, that I think man has always struggled with and was destined to struggle with as sinful beings, but um, there's a reason that scripture is littered with references to family structure. There's a reason why God has set up his nation, Israel, to respect the hierarchy of family, especially in relationship to him, uh, to God himself. And there's a reason that his word has no shortage of warnings and admonishments about idol worship, because that's exactly where that leads to, as I'll talk about. The world, the wisdom of man, um, would suggest that family is sort of the the be-all and end-all, the most important thing, or at least one of the most important things that we can work to achieve in our lives. They really put family on a pedestal for success. And we know that that sort of had its own um, rocky road, you know, like how, what's, I don't know the statistics, statistics, I'm sure they're not good, but of a, they call it a nuclear family, right? The, The traditional mom, dad, and then whatever, not divorces and stuff like that, but, Anyways, um, we, we treat family and we put family on a pedestal. Um, yeah, a secular study from, I think it was just December of last year, of 2019, reported um, that of the like 1,000-plus people that were asked what is the most important thing in your life, about 60% of them said family. They said family is where they draw their, their primary identity from. And another study from... Um, about four years ago, so not long ago, and this one specifically from a Christian research group, they corroborated the same sort of data. I want to read from you uh, a little excerpt from that study. Um, Yeah. It says, God, family, country. That might be the oft-touted creed of country music, but most Americans scramble the order. Adults are most likely to point to their family as making up a significant part of their personal identity. Being an American comes second, and religious faith is in third. In a tie for a distant fourth are people's career and their ethnic group. Significantly fewer adults would claim their state or their city have much impact on their personal identity. Uh, it made a funny note that when Super Bowl comes around, they might have a heightened sense of you know their state or their city as the part of their personal identity. I thought that was funny and germane. Uh, And when asked how much each of the factors make up their personal identity, a lot, some, not too much, or not at all, nearly two-thirds say their family makes up a lot of their personal identity at 62%. Patriotism still runs strong in most Americans, and more than half of all adults say, being an American makes up a lot of their personal identity, about 50% of them. And while religious faith barely squeaks in, there is a sharp drop from the first two factors in the number of people who say their faith is a major part of their identity. A majority of Americans agree their family and their country are central aspects of who they are, and fewer than two out of five adults say their religious faith makes up a lot of their personal identity. About the same proportion of adults give little or no credence to the idea that faith is part of their identity, and 18% say faith doesn't make up too much of their identity, and 1 in 5 say it doesn't affect their identity at all. So some of you might be like, and? Like, is that so bad that family is where we draw identity from? The problem isn't with the concept of family in itself and that's not what I want to be up here to talk about, but with how we treat and where we put family within God's proper context and economy. And I paralleled both studies for you to highlight that Christians aren't um, an exception to these statistics. Um, Natural family or or biological family, as as we'll call it, um, has usurped God and his body as the primary identity maker for a majority of people who believe. 62%, that's a majority. Uh, most of us in the church at large even prioritize our commitments to family above our commitments to the body of Christ. We keep that back. We hold it back. And this is, this is sad, and this is unfortunate, and the Bible offers us a different set of relational priorities once we come to Christ, and Christ himself says that. Um, some of us are Jews, and some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body, and throughout these few verses here there's a similar word that keeps being used it's called haste that's the greek for it um, to talk about body or family um, and being united in that and in romans we are many parts of a body and we all belong to each other and in ephesians make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit binding yourselves together with peace for there is one body and one spirit and you have been called to one glorious hope for the future Uh, And then in Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And this is what we're talking about. This concept of family entitled to our family and reserved away from the church, that's a division in the church, 100%. And I'm not saying, again, I want to be clear, I'm not saying the biological family is somehow bad or unimportant. It is good and it is important and it is ordained by God. Um, And if you want a refresher and a comprehensive, more than I'm going to even attempt to get into, go back to May of 2018 and Josh will spend four weeks and about six to seven hours talking about family and crib theory and all of that. I'm not a six to seven hour kind of guy. You know that. So I'm not going to even try. Um, But it's good. And I even went back on it and looked at it for the purposes of my sermon. But in that entitled argument, which pushes back on on God and commitment to his body, many of us as believers, um, we say, well, God loves family. Like, how dare you uh, challenge my commitment to my family or challenge how I um, run my family or challenge my idea of what the family should be in relationship to the body, like how dare you. And throughout scripture, uh, throughout scripture, families play a special role and are given several tasks. Um, this is to further you know, help you understand that I'm not saying family is bad. Um, rearing children in the Lord, husbands and wives, you know the parallel between Christ and the body and all these different things. Um, growing God's kingdom and being an outlet for an expression of Christ's love. We use family in all these different ways, and, and Paul writes in his letter to Timothy that those who don't care for their relatives, especially those in their households, have denied the truth faith, and such people are worse than unbelievers. If family weren't important, then there wouldn't be so much said about it, or anything said about it, in, in, in scripture. And, and God wouldn't set it up for us, like, spell it out for us, give instructions to us on how to raise a godly family. Um, the truth is, again, it's a blessing. It's ordained by God. It's, um, it's uh, from the law of God given to Moses. It's mentioned in Proverbs. It's, it's in Paul's letters, as I said. It's, it's all these different things. God makes it clear that it is important and significant, and it plays an important role. But on the other hand, as I said... Christ speaks about it too. And we're talking about it remember in relationship to service to God and to service to the body. And Christ paints this picture. Remember, we don't take one part of scripture and then run away with it. We don't take the and then we all of it, right? And Christ says, "Don't imagine in Matthew chapter 10. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. <clears throat> I came not to bring peace, but a sword." I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than, you, more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. And if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. God doesn't contradict himself, so how can both of these things be true? Where Paul's talking about this, how we treat our family, but Christ is talking about this, and God gives this law to Moses, but God also says this about, you know, this and that. So how can both things be true? Christ's words are to be <laughs> heeded, obviously, that should go without saying, and what uh, and our love should for him should be primary. And I think that, In our heads, we all agree with that. Our love for Christ should be primary. But what about in our hearts? And what about how we express that um, in our daily lives and in practicality? What I would suggest to you guys today is that uh, this sort of loyalty conflict um, that man manifests for himself um, is because he's unwilling to give back to God what God has already given to him in that family. There's a perspective issue. We talked about that last week. We're unwilling to bring our families into full worship and service to him. And we always want to make sure we have some sort of backdoor sort of clause written into our relationship with God contract, if you will. I'm not saying our relationship with God is a contract, but you understand my point. We always want to give ourselves a a backdoor when it comes to our family. If I don't like what's going on, I'm taking my family out of here. If you're going to challenge how I do things or challenge my Con- preconceptions about how I bring my family to the church or what I think they should be involved in or how I think that we as a family should serve, I'm getting out of here. How dare you? We treat this this idea of family as a, it's a hot button. It just is. It's a hot button for us. We don't want people to touch our money. We don't want t- people to touch our family. We don't want people to touch our parenting. I'm sure there's more, right? It's a hot, bus- hot button issue for us. We want to keep... Our two worlds separate. Our family is separate from our our relationship with God or our church. We want to keep it separate instead of living out uh, a consistent and holistic worldview under Christ and what he calls us to. And we want to love and serve them, the family, more than we want to love and serve and plug into him and his body. I would ask as believers, where is our loyalty? And where is our dedication? <clears throat> one of the things I appreciate about this church speaking about dedication is how we treat babies. Spoiler alert. There's going to be a dedication, I think, the beginning of March, for a baby that was just born. I hear there was one. Um, yeah, we said what? We set aside a special time as a whole body to honor and recognize what God has blessed us with as parents and as a community, and when he puts in our care another child. We set this special time aside. We hold a ceremony with the purpose of immediately giving back to God what he has already given to us. And that's the whole heart and spirit of what that dedication time is, is honoring what God has given to us and pledging to him back what he has given to us. Okay, um, And it's a statement of intent on our behalf. Um, that we will do everything we can in order to bring up that child um, with a th- love and fear of the Lord. And I really do like this. I don't know if it's a thing elsewhere. I'm not church-exposed enough. Um, I know we have, there's baptism, of course, um, and we don't treat the dedication as a replacement for the baptism, um, and we shouldn't, and we shouldn't think about it that way. Um, but I really do like that we do this as a, as a church. Um, Proverbs says to, to do this, to direct your children onto the right path, and when they're older, they will not leave it. Um, but my question is, as we think about that, and as we do that, and as we are all a part of that action, or that um, statement of intent, because we all are, um, do we mean it? And does that have legs in terms of how we view our families? Will that stand the test of time? Or will we allow entitlement to creep in um, and corrupt our loyalty to God when it comes to our family. This is my kid. I'm going to do what I want to do with them. They don't need to be um, pushed to grow and to be invested in this way. Why are you pushing them to, be grow, to grow and be invested in this way? That's your thing. It doesn't, It's not their thing. Um, it always creeps in. It always does. Um, I was thinking about it. I don't think it's ever been done here, but I think it would be a cool thing like... Um, Again I know we have baptism and baptism is, is separate and baptism is special I think it'd be a cool thing though if like a whole family like rededicated themselves to God like had like a special like ceremony um, <laughs> where it was like yeah they they wanted to hold this thing to rededicate their collective lives as a family unit to the body of Christ I think that'd be cool I don't know if it's ever been done, but I think it'd be cool my point and purpose though is to show you that man has taken what God has set up and what God has given. They've taken that, um, what God has created and ordained, and decided to worship that rather than him. To worship the creation rather than the creator. To, to um, put family as the thing that is um, to be worshipped and to be set apart and to be set aside as, as a holy thing for them. It's the pinnacle of of. of the human experience in a lot of people's um, lives, the thing to be upheld first and foremost. And for many of us as believers, family has become top of the priority list. Then maybe self-preservation. And then, uh, then if all the boxes are, are checked and we you know, feel safe and secure and our lives are sort of arbitrarily in order, then maybe I can give whatever else left I have to God if there's time. If there's time, of course. Big caveat. We need to challenge our idea of that. Um, what God ordained and set up is good. Man ran away with, forgetting where it came from. And in that way, set up a idol. Set up an idol, which is called family. And this year is about sacrifice. Josh laid out for you that what, is going, what that is going to mean and how we're going to... Um, have to shed our preconceptions of that and how we're going to have to get used to being uncomfortable in our discipleship and the very concept of sacrifice itself is a preconception. We need to say that it's not uh, shed, that it's not um, uh, a giving or or losing, I think he said, not giving or losing, but that it's, it's an act of worship, sacrifice. It comes from our heart and we'll be talking a lot about the heart um, as we talk about sacrifice this year and because it's in the heart that you hold back from God. Sacrifice comes from a heart that is rightly situated and rightly oriented toward God. Um, I think we would do well to examine um, the church in its infancy and early formation. And how many have read the book of Acts? I see a lot of soft nods. <laughs> And a soft these, that's good. Good job. (laughs) In the book of Acts, in chapter two, um, as the church is forming right after Pentecost, it says that they worshipped together at the temple each day, and they met in homes for the Lord's supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, and all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. A better translation would be, I would say that they did all these things with one mind. They were like-minded, with one passion. Scripture doesn't indicate that the early converts held back their families or kept them at a distance. In fact, it says quite the opposite, and I would say it's not a stretch that it infers quite the opposite. The record shows that they went all in, they went home to home, family to family. I don't think that's a stretch, guys. Um, we need to glean a valuable lesson from this, from the early church that came before us in this way, and they had no sense of entitlement in regards to their relationship with each other and with God and how they served in this way. They were completely and utterly selfless. I, I want to know if when we see this passage, because I love this, I love this passage in Acts. I think it's where we want to be, and where we should be heading. Um, But my question is, do we look at this and think that it's simply just a nice idea? Like, is it, oh, that's really cool, and it's this ethereal thing, this unattainable thing. They just were alive like we could never even imagine, you know? Do we view it in that way? Or are we, and are we intimidated by this fully invested and actualization of community and investment in the body of Christ? And if so, why? Why is that not something that we look at and ask, how can we get there? What can we be putting into place to get there? Why is it ethereal? Why is it just a nice idea when we read that and give us a little bit of goosebumps that they are serving each other in this way? Can we not look at that and say, we need to do this. Like We need to do this. We will be better for it. We will be better servants for God for it. We can accomplish more for God if we head in that direction. And if we stop holding back, Our family, for example, will lack nothing if we have this type of heart. Do we think that way? Do we think that way? Uh, An early church father said, he who does not have the church for his mother cannot have God for his father. Appreciate the simplicity in that. Very succinct. Americans are sort of unique in many ways, and one of the ways that um, we're unique Unique is how isolated we are as people. If you go to other parts of the country, I'm not a world traveler, by the way. I've been outside of the country one time, but I had my eyes open enough to see how things are. But if you go outside of the country, I say that because last week I like, talked about things in this fashion, too, as if I'm so, some sort of worldly-traveled person. Not really. Rose and Pastor Monty, maybe Josh, they're pretty, I call them worldly-traveled. They've been all over, but... Not me, but I'm, I'm aware enough to see how we're unique as Americans. But in other parts of the world, <clears throat> people live kind of on top of each other. They live really intimately in communities and stuff. But you come here to America, and I don't know if it's because our country is so big, because it is a really big country. Um, we all have our houses with our own property lines and plots of land and this and that. And so we feel like... We are, we're isolated in this way, and we feel like we're, we're owed this piece of privacy in our lives, and it feeds into this mentality you ha- we have. Um, I'm not saying that if you live on a house with an acre of land that you should sell it, okay? I'm not saying that. But it does feed into, like, this mentality that we have about having things reserved for ourselves, and we're owed this, and we work hard to have this, this thing for ourselves in, in, in life and in the world as as we live, you know? We work hard for these things and we deserve our privacy. Um, And we box in different parts of our lives too. Work is work, Um, church is church, family is family, Uh, mine is mine and yours is yours. We compartmentalize in all these different ways as we go about our lives. Uh, And we do this in opposition to what I was saying, living holistically and living in unity and like-mindedness in the body of Christ, and not holding that back, not holding ourselves or our families back, and allowing our faith to speak into all aspects of our lives. You know, I'm sure we can all cite a recent example even of how we've, we've just held back when we didn't have to, You know, when we could have spoken to something or blended the two worlds. I actually really appreciate Gio recently um, growing in this way. We talked about it when you were gone, Gio. We did like a praise that you are blending your worlds now um, with your girlfriend. is awesome, I think you should be commended for it, not to you know, call you out in your once a month visit to us. <laughs> 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 I'm praising you, okay? <laughs> um, as believers, we need to learn to situate our biological families under the overarching rubric of God's family and God's body. Not as distinct and separate and reserved social entities competing for time. Because that's when it becomes an issue, right? We're competing for time. Oh, the church wants me to do this and this and this, but my family this and this and this. And come on, I'm human, I have family, I get the tension, okay? I'm in a leadership position of the church. I understand greatly <laughs> the tension. But who do we serve? It boils down to that. Who do we serve? Are we bringing our family with us into that service, or are we allowing them to pull us? And then, and then this. Where are you in that? A watershed moment for me, I would say, in my relationship to God. And this was a hard conversation, but <clears throat> my in-laws—they kept trying to get me to, you know, take time on a Sunday or spend the spend the full weekend rather than go home on a Saturday night or or whatever it was. They kept trying to do this. And every chance they get, come hunting, come hunting. Not that I didn't want to do those things. I think it's awesome. Love going. But they kept wanting to do that. And eventually, it got to a breaking point for me, where I had to tell them, I love you guys, and I want to do all these things with you guys, and I will struggle to make them all happen. But if you keep telling me, or keep suggesting to me, or keep challenging who I'm going to go towards, you're going to lose that battle. And that's not a position I want to be in. And it's not a position I want to put you in or your daughter in, you know? But if you keep telling me to choose, I promise you're going to lose. And that is hard. And that sucks. <laughs> um, Christ's relational priorities, though, help us to understand where we are supposed to stand, to understand the, the family of God and the body. It's not here to serve the interests of our family and its preferences and its conveniences and desires and needs, but the other way around. Our families are here to serve God. He gave us our families. We give them back to him. How are we doing that? Check your entitlement in this regard, guys, as we talk about sacrifice this year. Check your sacrifice. Check your heart. Ask yourselves these questions as you guys go into cell group. Are you wrestling with what is being said today? That's a general question. Are you wrestling with what is being said today, and why? Are you holding back what is owed to God? How do you struggle with the loyalty conflict, as I put it, and where are your priorities? Men, how are you leading your families in this way? Where do you struggle, and do you have an entitled heart toward your family? And women, how are you being supportive to your husband in this way? Or are you feeding him unproductive things where he's going to have to, where you're going to put him in between a really difficult position and perhaps make him defect? Because <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Are you, are you being a serpent? Children, do you view aletheia as your intimate family? If not, why not? And lastly, how can you be sacrificing more and what are you holding back and what are you compartmentalizing in your life? Let's discuss.